For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. As the reading science movement continues to grow, even during this unprecedented time, it's so important to stay focused on what it takes to develop confident and capable readers. As we've learned, change can happen fast. That makes it even more important to stay connected and learn from each other. The more we learn and listen, the more prepared we'll be to lead. Together, let's voice challenges and take action. Our guest today is Africa Afini Mills, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Director at Better Lesson, a longtime educator and self-proclaimed guardian of equity. She has a passion for ensuring all students have windows and mirrors to build knowledge and develop understanding and compassion. Her point of view on this often talked about concept is so refreshing. I know you'll enjoy today's episode. Well, hello, Africa. It's so great to have you on the podcast today. Hi, it is so good to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, we're excited for the content that we're going to talk about today. Um, super relevant and just super interesting. I know that um, your work is getting out there more and more. And so for our listeners, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do and sort of the passion that drives you. Oh, absolutely. So I have, um, I'm currently the diversity, equity, and inclusion director for a company called Better Lesson. Um, the company provides professional development for educators around the country in a variety of areas, including literacy instruction. And I've been an educator for the past 20 years and a good part of my, um, my professional life prior to being at Better Lesson was spending time as a literacy coach and also as an elementary literacy director. So literacy is something that's that's very very um, near and dear to my heart in my professional work so that's that's what I would say about me <laughs> that's amazing and and I know I want to talk a little bit about your Facebook page you have a Facebook page called Africa's Equity Guardian. Can you tell us a little bit about that Facebook page and why you picked those words? Yeah, definitely. So I think that I really have been throughout my my career as an educator, I've really been very um, interested in and invested in um, race, culture, identity, and achievement when it comes to education. And um, the more I've been really engaging in, in equity work, I've you know heard the term like equity warrior. 
And so first I was like, yeah, warrior. Like, yes, I'm going to war <laughs> against these systems of oppression. And yes. But then I'm like, if, if anyone gets to know me, I'm like such like a teddy bear nurturer type of person. <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, warrior doesn't really work so much for me because I'm like, yes, I do want to be a, a definitely a, a willing and, and involved participant in dismantling systems of inequity. And at the same time, like, I think it's more so around like protecting what that is as opposed to destroying something else. And so I think a lot of that came from there was um, there's a colleague of ours. His name is um, James Ford. And a couple of years ago, I was at um, the National Network of State Teachers of the Year had a conference and he was a speaker and he talked about it being important to think to not spend so much time thinking about what you want to tear down that you don't think about what you actually want to build. And so that's when I started thinking about being an equity guardian as opposed to a warrior. And that's no disrespect to anyone who considers, considers themselves a warrior, totally. <laughs> but then for me, I think that guardian piece, it resonates a bit more. And, and when you think about protecting, you know, putting those two things together, the protection of equity, specifically, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so for me, I think, I think about the fact that when we think about um, the education system in the United States and, and all the different things we've been through over the centuries and decades and trying to make sure that we have integrated spaces, inclusive spaces that celebrate diversity and that are equitable for all students, that's not something that we have quite achieved yet. And so when I think about that, I think about really like living up to what we say as educators, because I believe that with the, with the exception of a few that I'm like, I'm not really sure why those folks are, are educators. <laughs> I think the, the, the majority of people who are teachers, they do it for a lot of really great reasons, whether it be because they love children or they love school and they want to pass on the love of learning to children or they believe that, you know, education provides opportunities for all students and they're really invested in that. And so I think that in order to, to really realize that dream of creating learning space and experiences that are really um, considerate of and what students and their families deserve, that we really need to be more focused on making sure that all students receive that type of environment. Some students do, but not all yeah. students. So I think we need, really need to pay particular attention to that and give some intentional effort and consistent effort around that. What was your, um, what's a good memory of one of your maybe elementary learning environments or learning experiences? I think I remember when we had our pre-call, you had a great memory. Oh, absolutely. So I think back to, so I, I am originally from Brooklyn, New York, and I went to elementary school at this, you know, our, the community school that I went to was such a, it was just such a really wonderful experience. I had the same two teachers for both fourth and fifth grade. So we were a fourth and fifth grade combination class. Mm -hmm. And I really, like, I've tried to find these teachers. I thought that maybe with <laughs> social media, I could find them. I have not successfully found them. So if by chance they happen to be listening, I hope I can connect with them. But um, Janie Miller and Roberta Kamler were my teachers in fourth and fifth grade and we we were in the school that was such like it just was so fun so we would go to school and they were like we didn't have any walls we didn't have any desks or chairs we just all sat on the rug and I, I mean I don't know if the teachers felt good about it but I'm like <laughs> for me as a student it was fun and so I just remember us doing a lot of really fun stuff like you know just I remember painting and studying art and being involved in musicals and they had us reading you know Shakespeare and learning Latin and things like that so now I mean we'll talk a bit more about like you know about when, with like, culturally responsive literacy practices, you know, as we talk a bit more today. But just really for me, what felt really special about those years is that the teachers that we had, there was no question about what we were capable of. There wasn't like, oh, well, we can't really expose them to this literature because they're not really prepared.
prepared for it or that's not, you know, that's not what, you know, what the, their reading level is or things like that. It was more so we're going to give them this these reading experiences and then we're going to provide the scaffolds that they need to be able to understand it. And so it just really felt like this really rich, fun experiences. And so I think that when, I, so that's part of the reason why I really believe that when I became an educator, those are the grades that I was attracted to teaching because those were such good memories for me. Mm, amazing and such yeah. good such good grade levels too because hopefully by then um, kids are are able to lift the print off the page and really be able to dig into rich content yes um, that's motivating and Absolutely. Shakespeare at fourth and fifth grade I girl. know right I mean seriously like I really because people when I tell people that story they don't really believe me they're like do you mean like the kid versions I'm like no we read Hamlet we read Julius Caesar we read uh, Midsummer Night's Dream we read all you know all I remember those plays very in, in particular and so I just, yeah, I'm like, it just shows what's possible. Yeah, it definitely shows what's possible. Yeah, that's that's really an, an amazing. And as we pivot a little bit, we I want to talk, a, you know, we're the Science of Reading podcast. So we talk mm -hmm. a lot about the simple view of reading and that what kids need to have to be really proficient readers and then motivated by that is both this idea of language comprehension and yes. word word recognition. Yes. We're going to focus on the language comprehension side because as we sort of dig into the ideas of culturally relevant instruction and mirrors mm -hmm. and windows, I think like you have a point of view about that. Mm -hmm. But talk a little bit about um, the importance then of, of language comprehension comprehension, including sort of this oral language development and background knowledge building, vocabulary, things like that. Yeah. So I think when I think back to even when I was in school getting my degree in elementary education, there was so much focus, especially in my reading methods, like teaching reading methods course. It talked a lot about the importance of being able to build students schema and to be able to, you know, like to really build, build, about, build upon what it is that they already come in knowing and making those connections and being sure to activate background knowledge. I feel like in a lot of ways, even though that's what we're taught how to do that's not always what happens unfortunately in the in the classroom and so I think like when I think about my own upbringing I think about my parents were such big storytellers like I mean it just was before I even whether it be you know through um actual stories or their love of like because they my mom and dad both grew up in Harlem during like the time where jazz was just booming Ugh. and they just so they Lovely. would play right so they played this music for me it's just such a rich musical and and the you know household that I grew up in was you know we had lots of literature like I remember seeing you know the writings of of like W.E.B. Du Bois and and you know Richard Wright things like that on our bookshelves and so those are things that I was already exposed to before I came to school and like I just finished talking about having a really great experience in fourth and fifth grade and at the same time I do wonder about like not to say that every student in every class in my school had that same experience that we had in that in that class with Miss Campbell and Miss Miller and so I wonder sometimes about like how do we get better at capitalizing with the oral comprehension that students come into school with and how do we take that schema that they're presenting to us and say, okay, now we're going to be able to connect it when we're thinking about phonemic awareness and we're thinking about teaching students how to decode and, and like read the words for themselves. Um, how do we build on what they're already coming to school with as opposed to, you know, not really connecting with what has already come from the home? Because I don't think we spend enough time thinking about students' families as their first teachers. And I think there's just so much, there's so much that we can gain there. Um, yeah, I could talk about that all day. <laughs> 
but yeah, just really thinking about like, you know, we, we absolutely as teachers, we have these foundational reading skills that we really want to make sure we support our, our students with. But we, I feel really feel like there's a lot that we can gain by expanding on um, and really interrogating a bit more. Like not only because I know like when I, when I think about having been a literacy coach and literacy director, yeah, we have all the assessments as far as like, you know, sound and letter recognition. And then we, we do we do those assessments to make sure that we're aware of what students know and are able to do when they get to school. And we do that every year as far as like assessing and progress mm-hmm. monitoring. But mm-hmm. I don't think we go deeply enough as far as like, you know, what types of books and what types of literature we want to use as they're continuing to build those those specific skills around decoding. Yeah, and I, I think this is the the idea of cultural relevance because I'm wondering first a question from your experience. So you had all this great literature at home and mm-hmm. exposure, you know, to great music, all that. Yeah. Did you see any of that reflected at all in your schooling experience? I would no. I would say as much as I love my teachers, and this is not to disparage them at all because I'm a, I'm an educator too. Um, yep. But no, it wasn't. It, there was not a connection there. So for me, I feel like you know, and my parents were like they were very very involved in my education they were you know as as you know there's a lot that can be said as far as like you know the structure of like conferences and things with making sure that families and, and, and teachers can stay connected around student progress um so my parents were very involved but i don't really remember there being like okay tell us about like you know what stories are important to you at home or what is it that you would like to see africa and her classmates learning about like i don't remember that ever happening and then and i talk to my parents quite a bit like my parents are still alive and we talk every sunday and i talk <laughs> to them a lot about you know like as now I'm, you know, I'm a grown woman and I have my own career, my, my own children. I'm about to be an empty nester, which feels weird, right? To have my hard. children. Yeah, it is. It's like, so to get to that point, I'm now going back and asking them questions about like, well, what was this experience like for you as my parent, you know? And so they were just like, yeah, that wasn't something that they asked us about. And I wonder if, you know, as much as I think it was great to be exposed to, you know, Latin and Shakespeare and things like that, I'm just like, yeah, but there was a lot else that I didn't get exposed to. I'm like, I didn't study like the poetry of Langston Hughes or County Cullen. No, those are things that my parents were exposing me to. And I wonder how much richer my learning experience would have been had that happened for me in school and for lots of students. Yeah, I think you just gave a great explanation of mirrors and windows because for you, your uh, home environment and what your parents exposed you to that that was your win your mirror yes but then when you went to school you had another experience mm-hmm. which was your window yes but somehow the two of those didn't exactly come together no and I think that's the thing that's really unfortunate because I think this goes into what I think about quite a bit too as far as like the the difference between having an asset-based relationship with families and their student and students mm-hmm. and their children and having a deficit-based narrative so when I think about the experiences that my parents had like they grew up um, like I said they they grew up in Harlem and they had their families had experienced poverty and things like that. And so I think that sometimes there is an assumption that because people don't have as many, like say financial resources or things like that. And there's lots of reasons why that, why that's true. Um, but I think that sometimes there's an assumption that, you know, that, students are coming almost like this, you know, the tabula rasa, right? Like they're this blank slate that we have to fill them up. And it's like, well, no, (laughs) the children, like they actually come with a lot of really rich experiences. And so I think I really wish that my teachers had spent more time connecting with my, with my family about like what they thought about and what their hopes and dreams were 
for mm. me as a learner. Yeah. Yeah. And for those listeners that maybe aren't um, familiar with the term a- asset and deficit, yeah. can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. So I think that when we think about an asset-based perspective, it's thinking that every child who comes into the classroom or into the learning space and the families from which they come and the communities from which the in which the families live, that asset-based perspective is thinking that there's a lot of richness that that all of like the communities and the families and the mm-hmm. children are bringing into the learning space that that makes the learning space richer right and that it that it enhances it and that they have things to contribute it's not that the teacher is like the sage on the stage pouring wisdom out onto children who don't have any concept of anything right and so it's really just being really aware of what are the assets that come from the communities and families and from the students and a deficit-based perspective is really coming from the the perspective of, of assuming and there's a lot of assumption there that students don't have a lot or that they have not been taught certain things or that they don't have certain skills or exposure or experience so i think one of the things that comes to mind for me most is like the way we talk about um you know, we talk about the like word gaps of like, oh, you know, like black and brown children are, are exposed to this many words, you know, before they come in, into kindergarten. And then, you know, white kids are exposed to this many more words and they have the opportunity to travel. And, you know, not, not all because no group is monolithic and nothing is true for every single sure. person, even of one group. But I think that there, there's an assumption that, you know, when it, when it's a deficit based perspective, it's you're, we're thinking about what the students don't have. And then the asset based perspective is like, no, we're, we're assuming that you do come in with a lot and it's my job as a facilitator of learning to learn what are those things and to include that as part of the learning experience in the classroom Hmm. so powerful because um i I do think there is some some assumption there and uh about experiences and experiences that are related to what's happening in the classroom and and sort of this idea that well wait a minute maybe we need to change a little bit about the classroom experience to better mirror uh you know the student experience if you absolutely will. and it's i mean i think about it quite a bit i don't know if you've ever seen this it's a short poem that's been going around on the internet for i think for a few years it's i believe it's uh, the student's name is joshua dickerson and the poem is called because i ain't got a pencil and so he talks about all the things that he did before he got to school like how he was able to like get his little sister up and dressed and he got the unif they got them in their uniforms made sure that they had breakfast and then got to school and then and he said and then the teacher fussed at me because I didn't have a pencil. It's just like, so if we were able to capitalize on that young person's experience, then we should be able to say like, okay, yes, okay, so maybe he didn't have the pencil. Let's just go ahead and give him the pencil, right? And then just like see (laughs) what it is that he's bringing to the classroom as opposed to really focusing on minutia because a pencil is not the most important thing for us to spend our time on with students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's interesting. Yeah. So I know you've done a lot of thinking about this concept of 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 mirrors and windows and mm-hmm. what i'd love for you to do is could you just give our listeners uh just sort of an explanation of what we mean by when we talk about that yeah definitely so i know like how i was first introduced to it is by the work of um a woman named rudine sims bishop who talks about that concept of windows and mirrors so basically when we're thinking about windows for students is that you know you have the opportunity when you're in the learning space to be able to um 
with regards to windows, like you're looking um, beyond your own personal experience and the ways that you identify as a person to learning about other people and other people's histories and perspectives and interests and celebrations and all of these different things about people who are not in the same group that you identify with. So that's the, the windows component. When it comes to mirrors, that's the opportunity that all students should have to be able to see the parts of their own identity reflected back to them. So not only, you know, not only histories, because I think that's the other piece too that can be tricky around folks who are from marginalized groups where it's like yes in order to be inclusive we have to talk about like enslavement and the civil rights movement so yes there is a place for that but not only that right so we're talking mm -hmm. about histories and experiences and you know and like I was talking about the celebrations and the scholarship and all these different things of people who look like you and so for the most part we what we face in a lot of ways is that white students or students from more privileged groups um, get to see a lot of mirrors right they see themselves reflected back quite a bit when in the history and the content and the characters and the fiction stories that they read and the poems and things like that um and but then when we have students who are from more mar marginalized groups or mar especially when it comes to race that they don't really experience very like they experience lots of windows a lot of times into um privilege the, the identities and the histories of, of privileged people but don't see a lot of themselves reflected back in the many ways that they that they um show up in the world and so I think that's the piece, too, is that as teachers, we want to make sure that all students have the opportunities to experience both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why is that? So in in our in our pre-call, like we 100 percent know that um, uh, we need to get more mirrors in the classrooms for mm -hmm. many, many, many of our students. Yep. But talk a little bit about how bringing mirrors, more mirrors into our classroom situations for students actually allow other students to have more windows. Did that right. make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. <laughs> so I think about that too. So like for example, right? So I'm going to use a, like a really basic example. Perfect. So when I think about there's this book called, and I'm not going to remember the name of the author, so I apologize ahead of time for that, but there's a children's book called Not Norman, right? And the basic, the premise of that book, it's like, I mean, it's gorgeously illustrated. There's a little black boy who is going through this the story is about this black boy and his goldfish right so if I as a as a teacher I'm trying to you know I'm working with my students on their literacy skills and I have this book in the classroom not only is this going to provide the opportunity for black and brown kids to see themselves reflected outside of the narrative of oppression it's going to be like yes black kids have pets right like this <laughs> yeah. like this is not something that we always get to see so that's going to be a mirror for black and brown kids but it's also really great for say white students because unfortunately when we think about the representation of black and brown people for the most part like it's either sorely lacking or it's very it's in and i guess in the best case it's kind of myopic and in the worst case it's really like okay like we're seeing a lot of representation of black folks as criminals or that you know or dark skin as a problem or you know like so i think that it's really important for students who are not black and brown to be able to see you know the the whole uh, gamut of experiences that black and brown people, you know, that, that, that we live through because it's not just about resistance and, and fighting oppression, although that is a big part of our history here. There's just sometimes where you need to just read a book that's about, there's another one. Um, I think it's called like Max and the Tagalong Moon. It's about a little black boy trying to outrun the moon, like just basic stories, right? Mm -hmm. About kids just being kids and that, you know, for, for students to be able to see themselves reflected in that way. And then for other students who don't typically get to enjoy that narrative about people who don't look like them to be able to to expand their their windows about the lives of other people and how would you respond when you say so you said something about like when 
kids pick up a picture book, right? Mm -hmm. Like the majority of the time they're going to see uh, a, a white kid reflected back yep. to them. How, like, how do you respond to that data? Yeah, so I think that the fact that that has happened is, is you know, it really does feed into it. Because I think for the most part, especially nowadays, there's a lot more focus on, like, trying to make sure that students have opportunities to engage in anti-racist, anti-biased learning and mm -hmm. all these types of things. And I'm just like, and I think sometimes people feel like it looks all the way like, okay, we need to be all, like, activists. And I'm like, and there's definitely activism that we can, you know, that we can support, you know, support students around, like, especially when that's developmentally appropriate for them or whatever. But I think that the other piece too is like a lot of that foundational work starts in just like making sure that we're being really inquisitive about the resources that we're providing for students and just having the lens and this and I do I do want to name that I understand how how hard this is because because even prior to going through the pandemic, you know, there's so much on teachers' plates already. So thinking about like, if I'm working in a school and I already have a literacy curriculum that I'm being expected to implement, mm -hmm. trying to go back through and be like, okay, so no, these books are not representative of all children. So now I got to pick different books and I have to make sure that they all address these skills, right? So I'm not saying that it's easy, um, but I do think like, as far as like, just making sure that it's possible, it's like even like starting small or making sure that we work together with one another. So like, say if you're on a third grade team or a sec like you know thinking about early literacy as well in, in particular so thinking about like a kindergarten or first grade team that we're working together like maybe one of us is bringing on one book and another person's bringing on another so that we can expand and work together so we're not feeling isolated but I think it's just really it's important to acknowledge that it is challenging and then to think about like how do we make sure that this work is not only um, attainable but sustainable as well. And from my point of view, sometimes teachers, it's not even possible for teachers because the selections of books that are actually in published and still in print um, are just not reflective of our populations. Right. So true. It's so true. I think I've seen some districts, like even my own district where I, where I live, is um, I've seen people do it in a sense of being like, all right, so when it's time for summer reading, we'll make sure that we list these different options mm -hmm. of books that mm -hmm. students can read. Um, and we'll like, I know even... Um, one of the things that we did recently as a town, you know how some towns have like whole town initiatives where we're all reading the books of one particular author or one particular yeah. book. And so one of the recent authors that we highlighted was Jacqueline Woodson's work. And I thought that that was such a great oh, idea, great. right? Yeah. Because she writes books at so many, like she has picture books and young adult books. And I think she's even like, you know, like young adults. And I, like for me, I'm like, I don't consider myself a young adult, but I love her books. Like one of her <laughs> most recent books, I'm just like, I, I will read in any book, right? And so as far as like, you know, especially from, from her because she, she just is such a masterful um, um, writer and creator of content. So I think that's the piece too is thinking of, I've seen educators try to say like, okay, yes, I have this, this curriculum that I'm expected to implement and how can I, how can I encourage students to read additional literature as well? So sometimes it'll be like for, you know, for the reading, like if, if we've been asked to do like 15 minutes of reading, encouraging students to make sure they're picking a variety of different books and stuff too. But um, yeah, it, it can be really challenging. And then what about like the content side of it? So even as we're starting to talk about like grade four and grade five, and we're studying about, let's just throw it out there, American history events, yeah. right? How do we help bring windows and mirrors to that kind of concept? Yeah, I think so. For me, one of the things that has been helpful 
is, I don't know if you've had a chance to see um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk about the danger of a single story. I have. Um, but I, yeah, so I definitely, like for any, any listener who hasn't had a chance to see that yet, I highly encourage it. And I think that that's one of the things that I think about too, is that as we're talking about history, it's important for us to interrogate like whose story in this in this, the, the concept I'm teaching is not being told, right? So when I think about for myself, when I was in school, I don't think I learned anything from any of my teachers about any indigenous folks until like, until I was like a teacher, right? Then I started pursuing that, that knowledge, not on my own. I think I started to meet people who were sharing this knowledge with me. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't really realize the fact that the only time I ever really see indigenous folks being talked about is in a historical context as if, as if, indigenous people don't exist anymore or around like thanksgiving you'll see these like you know these coloring pages that are not very appropriate either but that's another story for another day (laughs) um but yeah so i'm like so that type of thing i'm like well you start to realize okay so then it's about like okay so this is what's contained in this chapter how could i especially as students get older how can i assign another reading and it goes i'm like to me i feel like it goes like you know i know there's different feelings about different standards and things like that but i'm like just really the encouragement to make sure the students are reading you know at least you know two different articles from different perspectives about a particular you know time in history or particular perspective like that piece of it too is like okay so when we're talking about you know columbus day is coming up why is it that some states and some cities have switched to indigenous people's day instead of columbus day there's a reason for that right and so uh, when we think about how we're teaching about enslavement are we only teaching that black folks that that's where history began for black folks because that's that's not good so we want to say okay if we're going to teach this history we do want i'm not saying you have to do a whole like african continental exploration before you get to your content but to even say a bit about like where people came from before they were here and also how um black folks were involved in their own liberation it wasn't just about like oh abraham lincoln came along and he did x and so now after that black people were free it's like actually that's a bit um, oversimplified and not quite accurate. So it's just really just kind of thinking about like the accuracy and the fullness about what it is that we're teaching. Mm, I love that word fullness because it comes back to this idea of comprehension Yes. because when we give kids that information and that vocabulary and those ideas, they can better approach any kind of text or any yes. kind of situation with a fuller point of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we want, right? Like we really name, like when we think about, we talk about 21st century skills and how we want our students to be global citizens. It's like, uh-huh. Okay. In order for that to happen, we do need to make sure that they're engaging in these critical, in critical ways of thinking and considering things. Right. And so I think that sometimes too, like I, cause there was a time that I spent as a um, curriculum and instruction director where I was providing professional development for, for elementary teachers and also revising a curriculum about like, you know, it was called, um, it was about um, children discovering justice. And Mm so I remember there being some pushback and being like, oh, well, as we're trying to tell these stories, is this revisionist history? I'm just like, see, that's the problem. It's like when you haven't really heard about the different perspectives of on historical events, when someone starts to try to introduce other perspectives, it seems like it's revisionist when it's actually, no, this is, this is the fuller story, right? That we actually haven't had a chance to learn. So I think that's the piece of it too, is that we're, we're trying to make sure students have all of the content before them to consider for themselves. Yeah. Mm. It's powerful. Yeah. In the in your current role now, don't you do a lot of this kind of work to 
help educate and help sort of make some classroom level changes to support De that? Yes, definitely. So I think that, you know, it's really like we were saying, this, this is not something that's it's easy to do, especially because like when we think about our own teacher prep programs, if mm -hmm. we were lucky, we may have had some type of course about diversity, not probably not a required course, or maybe it was depending, <laughs> depending on yeah. what, what, what teacher program we, we, we were part of. Um, but I think that's the piece too, is that we're like, okay, if we didn't, we didn't have this experience, most of us in our K to 12 experiences and, and some of us K to 16. So how is it that we are going to be equipped to present a different way of learning to our students if we didn't have it ourselves? So we have to really take the time to be able to say like, okay, so how do we make sure that we ourselves are aware of certain things so that we can share those, those stories and those perspectives with our students as well. So I think that's the piece too, is that, yeah, to give ourselves the opportunity to learn and, and we can be, I mean, some of it is that we're, we're exploring this content with our students, right? It's not that we have to have it all figured out already. We don't need to wait for that time to happen. We just really need to make sure that we are taking the time to make sure that we are giving our students like the skills that they need to be able to, you know, to, to learn about themselves and the world and, and how to be engaged citizens and how to be decent people and how to encourage belonging in spaces that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. How have you seen either teachers' point of views transform uh, by making those changes or classroom environments change? Yeah, so one of the things I will name is that what I've been able to be a part of like not only creating culturally responsive um, teaching and learning strategies, but also um, create like being a part of a project through Better Lesson where we got to have teachers um, sharing about how they are, how they're engaging in culturally responsive pedagogy as well and in practices. And so to me, I'm just like, I could write these things down. And I think, you know I mean? I think that I was able to curate some decent resources like, like I really feel good about that work, but it's not the same as people who are currently working in classrooms with students, you know, like what that work looks like for them. So for me, what I've seen happen is that, especially once we were able to create these strategies from classroom teachers and from those who are working directly with students or coaching teachers around this content, is to be able to say like, here's how I approach, you know, like here's how I approach this literacy content from a culturally responsive um, perspective. And so for other teachers to see where those practices are happening is so helpful because otherwise it's just like, okay, yes, even if like, say I read a book or I watch a documentary and I'm like, okay, yes, this is something that I would like to shift to. But if I don't know what that looks like effectively, then it's really hard for me to take on those practices myself. And so I think a lot of it is really trying to like create networks where teachers can show one another how they're engaging in this work with their, with their students as well so that they can see what it looks like. So we're able to have like to record some teachers in their practice and to see you know, like there was one of our participants had, um, he was doing spoken word with his students and we got to see them engaging in that. So I think that piece of it, as far as like really concretely supporting um, educators is to provide those models of like, not only here's a potential lesson plan, but here's somebody in the classroom who did this with students or who did this with families or with the community. And this, these were the outcomes so people can see what's possible. Hmm, that's amazing. And it yeah. seems to me that for a student in a classroom that's getting a much richer uh, experience in terms of perspectives of content, it's got to be motivational to them. Absolutely. I've just really seen such beautiful things take place. And it's just like when I, I love seeing it because you see the difference that it makes for students. And I think 
some of what happens too is like going back to what we were talking about in the beginning around the difference between a deficit narrative and an asset-based narrative. Mm -hmm. It is so easy if you haven't had the experience yourself. If some people, like say you go into a school and you're, you're a new teacher and all most of the other folks around you, you're in a community where the narrative is that, yes, the students are not coming to school with much or there's lots of behavior problems here and that's the narrative that you come in with, then you're probably not going to push the students to have like these rigorous you know learning experiences where they get to like you know because you come in thinking like I just really mostly have to focus on behavior and then maybe like some of the skills that they're working on are kind of like lower level skills like I've seen that happen in certain schools where it's like you know they focus like not on not they focus more on like grammar worksheets and spelling lists and not on the like building of comprehension and that oral comprehension and those pieces that we were talking about before so I think that's the piece too is just really looking at like okay so how do we how do we defeat that narrative so that we know what's possible with students and that we get to work together to that end mm, that's lovely yeah well as as we wrap up i'm wondering um you know bringing it back to this idea of building that background knowledge and vocabulary and perspectives what is something you could leave with our listeners about ways they could maybe make incremental classroom changes to bring more of this into their own classroom yeah, so for me, and I know that this gets trickier because we're in the midst of the pandemic and some schools like the hybrid sure. and some are like, you know, remote. Like I know that there are lots of challenges that are coming with just like actual school, right? Just actually like, how do we do this in the, in this in this circumstance? Um, but one of the things, and I, I talked about it a bit in the beginning, but I think a lot of it comes to um, thinking about like, how do we take the goals and that we have for our students when it comes to them adopting and, and really, you know, really increasing and building on their literacy skills. How do we capitalize on what it is that they've already come in with? So one of the things I think back to my early teaching experiences and one of the things, you know, like they give you like, you know, first days of school and you're trying to like, OK, this is how I'm going to get to know my students and their families. Yeah. and I'm going to give out these surveys and nobody ever told me what to do with the survey once I did it. <laughs> I was like, OK, <laughs> so now I know all this stuff about the students and I know what what they like and I know what they how they spent their summer and I know some of these things. But I'm like, but I didn't actually operationalize any of that, really. And mm. I really just kind of like put it in a folder and I'm just like, OK, so now I know this stuff, but I didn't actually implement it. So part of me is like, I think about like, what are the ways that we can take the ways that we reach out to connect with students, which many of us do in the beginning of the school year? And how do we take that and build it into the content that we're, you know, that we're learning about? So so even if it's like, you know, I, I know we talked about the difficulty if you're a teacher and this is the literacy curriculum that you have and, and you don't really have a lot of wiggle room around that, mm -hmm. that even looking in what it is that we have, like, are there a number of students who feel like they would like to just be able to, to share about this topic and this topic is connected to something that we're going to be studying in our content like mm -hmm. in any ways that we can just find any ways to connect and to hear from students what it is that they that they would like to learn about and I think the other piece too and I know that this part can feel scary because if we don't have a structured like healthy system for feedback it can feel like it can feel a bit too open-ended to be like yeah let's just do student surveys because all of us are human beings and it's like well what if they say something about me that I don't <laughs> I don't really want to hear right so I'm like so that's that's real that's real to that's be real. it's very real but at the same time i'm just like just even from like if a student is like even if they're five or six just really being in the practice of asking them like what is it that you were hoping to learn about this year that you would like to learn about and just seeing like where possible so maybe it might not even be possible when reading i mean i think a lot of stuff is possible but like say it's hard to do it during like a literacy block like say there might be something that's about science or it's about social studies that they want to learn about so maybe we can expand it into when we're addressing those content areas and things like that so and even too with 
like when it comes to math, like I know like we're really focusing on literacy, but even there's so much word, like word knowledge is even necessary in understanding math concepts too. So I think just really trying to make sure that we are um, staying in touch with what it is that students would like to learn about because when they, then we have buy-in from them because they get to actually engage in learning that they're interested in. And then a lot of the other things that we're challenged by, I'm not saying that they all get solved, but I think they become a lot easier to address. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting because you think about a, um, having, there's benefits to having a structured curriculum in your classroom and many times people or teachers feel like, oh, I can't vary from this, but then intersecting that with really who are your students this year yes. and how can you extend that content or, in, you know, uh, customize it in such a way that it makes the students feel like they're part. Absolutely. And how can you connect it in some ways? Like, say, for example, you might feel a little bit, you know, maybe feeling limited with like the literacy, like as far as like what's happening during the reading block. But then there's also the writing piece. So it's like when you're starting to have students writing, then maybe even factor that in, right? Like if they're able to write stories about themselves and that's part of the, their literacy development as well as about how do they take what they're understanding and putting it into writing. Like there's other ways that we can engage students in ways, you know, and in bringing their interests and who they are into the classroom. And then when we have that sense of belonging like I, I so experienced that there was a time that I taught fifth grade it was like one of the most beautiful years of teaching that I've ever had from a student perspective um just a really beautiful class and folks was like just so connected and the kids were so happy it was fifth grade too so I'm like sometimes people just oh fifth graders I'm like yeah fifth graders they were great but just that was so wonderful and they, they got to bring so much of themselves into the classroom um and that was my first time really trying to put that into practice I would say earlier in my teaching career and it just really made such a big difference it really mm. did. So, yeah, I highly encourage that that approach. Well, we really appreciate you being here. And for our listeners, we'll link um, we'll link them to some of the resources that you mentioned um, okay. in the show notes so that they can check out the work that you do. But just really thank you for your perspective um, on mirrors and windows and bringing bringing more content to kids in ways that they can just really enrich their who they are and what they bring to the classroom. So thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to learn more? Make sure you join our free virtual literacy symposium, Literacy in a Changing World, Moving Forward Together. It's on Thursday, October 15th, and information is in the show notes. Also, be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch.